to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. A few weeks ago, we told you that there are a number of questions that any worldview or belief system must deal with or, or have an answer for. I'm not saying that they all have the right answer. I'm just saying any, any worldview or belief system will have to deal with these issues. And they are basically questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. In other words, where did I come from? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Or what is it, what is it to have a good life? And where am I going? And the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus deals with at least two of these issues. It deals with the questions of meaning and morality, or, or why am I here and what is the good life, or who is a good person. And Jesus uses this formula six times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And in past, a lot of times people have treated these almost as six new laws. And, you know, it's possible to end up being just as legalistic about the Sermon on the Mount as it is about, uh, as, as the Pharisees were about the law of Moses. The reality is, these are not six new laws, but they are illustrations of universal principles. They're principles such as this, that the spirit of the law matters more than the letter of the law. So in other words, these, these ideas you can take and read through every one of these statements where Jesus says, you have heard it said this, but I say, and what you are reading is not a new law or not an explanation of the old law, but you are, are hearing Jesus give to you the underlying principles that really were a part of the law all the time, really should have been there all along. The spirit of the law matters more than the letter of the law. Conformity is in motivation and intent, not just action. Now, it is true, I would have a whole lot rather have somebody want to punch me in the nose than that they actually did it. However, in wanting to, they are in violation of the law. Conformity is in motivation and intent. Also, the law is about being truly good, not just not being bad. That's kind of hard to say, but it is about being truly good. It's not just not being bad. And the law is not an end in itself. The law is not an end in itself, but it is intended to facilitate relationships intended to facilitate relationships. In other words, people who live accordingly have a heart 
that wills the good. That's, that's what it is to live according to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just do this and don't do that and check, 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 and I'm a good person according to Jesus. But it is having a genuinely good heart, a heart that wills good for people. So with that as background, I want to take you on to the next portion uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is verses 21 through 26 of Matthew chapter 5. And we will talk a little bit about kingdoms in conflict. Or or if your uh, Bible has subtitles over various sections, you might see this section is titled Anger. Anger. And by the way, this is probably a good place to mention that, that these issues and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is intended really to be taken as a single unit. I do believe there are aspects of it that are are combined uh, teachings of Jesus, yet it is also intended to be read and understood as a single sermon, and each of these topics build one upon the other. And Jesus deals with anger first. Do you have any idea, perhaps, why Jesus deals with anger first? One of the reasons I believe he deals with anger first is because it is a it is a foundational sin. It is a root sin. Can you think of how many other sins would be taken care of if we just dealt with anger? How many sins, how many crime, uh, how much of that grows out of anger? We could deal with a lot of the problems in the human race in the world around us, if we could just take care of anger and get that issue resolved. So let's talk for a little bit about kingdom conflict or anger. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, I'm not going to be digging deeply into everything that this passage says, but what I want to do is to deal with the underlying issues and the underlying principles When we were singing earlier, uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have, uh, I'd rather be his than have riches untold. We are talking there about kingdoms, kingdom language. And the reality is that we all have a kingdom. Did you know that? Did you know you have a kingdom? Your kingdom 
essentially is where what you say goes. It's where your will is done, and you have control to say what should and shouldn't happen, and you assert that. Now, some of us have a pretty small kingdom. Some of us may have an extensive kingdom. We may have large areas of life, a territory where our, our control, our kingdom extends, but basically your kingdom is where you have the ability to say what ought to be and what ought not to be. Now, kingdom conflict comes when we have two kingdoms that want different things, and they kind of bump into each other. Sometimes they overlap, but more often than not, rather than a kingdom here, you know, when kingdoms overlap, that's when, that's when they agree. They agree together on, on what ought to be and what ought not to be. We're seeing a perfect illustration of this in our world today. If you've been listening to or watching the news and you know what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, what you're seeing there are kingdoms, some of which overlap and some of which do not agree and they are in conflict. So what happens when kingdoms collide? Well, there is conflict. Anger results. Kingdom conflict is easiest to see for most of us when we're driving down the roads and highways of this wonderful land of freedom that we live in. I... As I was reflecting on this earlier this morning, I was remembering when I was about 11, 12 years old and my dad left the pastorate uh, to go into full-time evangelistic work and traveling around the country and holding revival meetings here and there, uh, our family purchased an old bus. It was a 1951 GMC Trailways bus it had been used as an over as a uh, like a commercial carry passengers Um, so 1951 was not as long ago then as it is now but it was still a long time ago this was about 1990 and uh, so we were driving around traveling around in a 40 year old bus the engine had been upgraded and and it was a little bit newer of an engine but uh, it was. It still struggled sometimes to get down the road, especially if we had any steep hills to climb. And I remember fairly early on, one of the places we got called to go was at the Nazarene Church, one of the Nazarene churches in Lake Placid, New York. Now, I don't know how good your geography is, but if you know anything about where Lake Placid, New York is, you have to go into and through parts of the Adirondack Mountains to get to Lake Placid. And let me just tell you that, I'm not sure about now, but at least at that time, there was no interstate to get through and up into Lake Placid. There were just the state highways that went through the Adirondack Mountains, and those are some steep hills to climb. 
And I can remember uh, probably, I guess, just about 11 or 12 years old, getting up some of those hills and the traffic would line up behind us and that poor old diesel would be just belching the black smoke and those cars would be lined up because, and we were sitting in the bus trying to do this to help it get up the hill. And we'd slow down almost to a crawl. Thankfully, every once in a while, there was a pull-off, a place. And, and because they knew stuff like that was going to happen in those, in those mountain roads, there were places where trucks and large vehicles could pull off and let other traffic go around you. But we'd pull off in those places, and the cars would go around and blare, lay on their horns and shake their fists out the window and sometimes less appropriate gestures as well. Um, when you're driving, you see a lot of kingdom conflict. Have you, anybody ever noticed that? Have you seen any kingdom conflict while you've been driving down the road? Well, kingdom conflict for the human race started in the garden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve first decided to assert their will against God's will. And kingdom conflict actually began with the kingdoms of humanity against God's kingdom and God's plan and purpose for mankind. That continued on throughout human history until we come to Genesis chapter 11. And there's an interesting story in Genesis chapter 11. You probably know it as the story of the Tower of Babel. And uh, there we read that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said, come, let us make bricks and burn them. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there. You see, God's plan for humanity was this dispersal, that we would be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Humanity, at this point in history, came together and said, let us not be dispersed, but let's all come together and let's build a tower that reaches into heaven. And this is essentially humanity uh, shaking their fist in God's face and saying, we're not going to be dispersed. We're not going to spread out. It is our will, our plan and purpose to make a name for ourselves. We want to be something. We want to be something that matters. And man's will set against God's purpose with the goal of establishing a human kingdom as opposed to a godly kingdom. And this God would not allow. And what's interesting to me, I, I guess in studying this, this is the first time I've really seen this. God is kind of the one who introduced human conflict to the equation. 
Now, I suppose it's been there since, since uh, the story of Cain and Abel. People have been having conflict with each other. But in order to disallow humanity to set up their own kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom, God confused the languages so that people could not understand one another and that they would not be able to assert their will against God's will. And now we just simply live with conflict as a part of the everyday life. And we know, you know, sometimes even people that speak the same language can't understand each other and can't get along with each other. And so we are used to living with human conflict and and butting heads and disagreeing. And because of that, we live in kingdoms. If I can use that word, nations, governments, we live with laws and rules and regulations so that we can all live in our kingdoms and as much as possible avoid injuring or killing one another. But then about 2,200 years later, after the Tower of Babel, Jesus comes along preaching what the Bible calls the good news about the kingdom of God. He says, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The door is open, and you can step into it. You can enter God's kingdom and live there. This is a a realm, Jesus teaches, where anyone can be blessed regardless of their conditions or their circumstances. It is a realm where citizens are not bound by external laws, but rather are motivated by true inner goodness. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. In other words, in these statements where he says, you have heard it said this, but I say unto you this, Jesus is not just giving us new laws or explaining old laws in new ways, but he's giving us a picture of what life is like in the kingdom of God. Where we are motivated by true inner goodness. It is a kingdom governed by love. A kingdom governed by love. So what would that look like? What would that involve? Most of us, when we think about love in our cultural context, we think in the wrong direction. We think about the things, the ideas that we have learned from romance novels or from the entertainment industry, uh, those ideas about love, and most of that has nothing to do with what real love is. Real godly love has to do with this idea. The word that you see on the left of the screen is benevolence. We use that word and often think that it means it has something to do with with charity or something like that. And, And it can sometimes have a negative connotation. But really, benevolence simply means willing the good. It's from the from two Latin words bene meaning good or uh, uh, yeah bene good and then the other word that has to do with volition or will so it's to will the good and this is what godly love is it is setting your own interests and your own desires aside for the good of the other person that is godly love in contrast 
to that, we have anger. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage in Matthew chapter 5. And anger, we could simply say, is willing the bad. We could use this language of cursing someone. In another passage of Scripture, we read these words. Uh, I believe it's from James. Out of the same mouth proceeds both blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be. And when it says cursing, it is not simply uh, referring to four-letter words, being profane, profanity. That's not what it is. But it's this idea of an anger that asserts itself so strongly that you wish bad for someone. And instead of wishing them good or blessing them, you wish them bad, bad fortune, misfortune. It is the expression of wrath or malice. I read a story not too long ago about a 19-year-old young man who was upset about crashing his car. And you know what he did? After crashing his car, Melvin Glick got a shotgun and fired five rounds from his shotgun into his car. He shot the car. And that wasn't a good enough expression of how angry he was. So he climbed up on top of it and stomped and jumped up and down on top of his car. He's so upset because he crashed his car. And so all he wants to do is, stupid car, as if it's the car's fault. (laughs) Oh... I think it's the littlest things. It can be the littlest things that push us over the edge. I have you ever snapped a shoelace? Isn't that frustrating? And um, thankfully, thankfully, it doesn't happen often. I uh, because and it hasn't happened in a long time. But I can remember times in my life when things have happened, little things, like snapping a shoelace that frustrated the tar out of me and just irritated me so bad that I just wanted to take that shoe and throw it into the back of the closet. Anybody know what I mean? Any kindred spirits here? Um, God has a, a way and a means of taking care of that. Lest you get the wrong impression. I spent... I'm doing some math. I spent at least six hours... Uh, Friday, working on a, a project. I was changing the brakes on our van. And I've told people, sometimes I, I know enough 
sometimes to get some things done, and sometimes I know enough to get myself in trouble. And the, I, I looked up how to do it, the process. I felt like, yeah, I can handle that. And I ended up, it almost always ends up being harder than you think it's going to be. And a job that should have taken maybe two or three hours ended up taking me at least twice that long. <clears throat> and can I just tell you this morning, glory to God, I didn't lose my temper once during that whole time. There was maybe a few moments of frustration, anxiety, but God has helped me where that thing that wants to rise up doesn't rise up like it used to. God has a way of taking care of that. Say, how is that, preacher? How does that happen? I believe simply we read about it in Acts chapter 2. You know what Acts chapter 2 is. It's the explanation of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And again, when did we talk about the spiritual lightning? Was that just last week? I think it was last week we talked about the spiritual lightning where something happens and you get saved or you get sanctified and poof, almost as if by magic, all of your problems disappear and all of your problems go away. I, I want to be careful that I don't simplify this. I believe in holiness churches we have done that. And honestly, it's, it's just us here, so we can talk pretty, I think we can talk pretty plain this morning. I believe in many times holiness circles, we have communicated the idea that the gift of the Holy Spirit or entire sanctification, the doctrine of holiness, is the, is the magic cure-all. It's the spiritual lightning bolt. And if you have your personal Pentecost, it's going to zap you and you're no longer going to have to deal with any of those issues. And friends, I've lived long enough and experienced enough life myself to know that just is not true. It does not happen that way. It does take care of the main thing. And for some of us, that's a different issue. I believe, and I, I, really... Entire sanctification, the gift of the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it deals with in essence is purity of heart. It is purifying our hearts of original sin. But it does not correct everything that's wrong up here. And it does not correct everything that is wrong that lives in our bodies. This is, I, I'm, in some ways I'm so afraid that somebody's going to misunderstand that I keep wanting to try to explain and try to explain and end up just over-explaining. And I'm good at over-explaining. <clears throat> so for right now, let me just leave it at this. This is not the the lightning bolt. There is no lightning bolt. 
not either in conversion or in, in the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no lightning bolt that will zap and all of your problems are gone. You have, it's easy for you to live the Christian life. You no longer have to fight the devil. You no longer have to fight temptation. Not, there's nothing like that available. Nothing like that. However, the new birth and the gift of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful experience that is available for everyone. And there's good reason for every one of us to pursue it with all of our hearts until we know, both in salvation and in entire sanctification, that all of our will, everything that I am, is fully surrendered to God. And in Acts chapter 2, we read these words, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. This is, these are the, the disciples, the Christ followers. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And friends, what we need to understand is the most important thing that takes place through Pentecost and in our own personal experience of Pentecost is not the phenomena that takes place on that day. It was not the the mighty rushing wind or the tongues of fire that rested on their heads or the speaking in other languages. The most important thing that took place, Peter expressed it, I believe it was in Acts chapter 15. He says, our hearts were purified by faith. When Peter summed up everything that happened at Pentecost, that's what he said took place. And what happened is a group of people so surrendered themselves to God's will and to God's way that it was their will set on doing God's will and fulfilling His purpose with the goal of establishing His kingdom. And what we have here, and this, is, this was eye-opening to me, and I hope, I hope it'll be eye-opening to some of you. In Pentecost, you have essentially the undoing of what took place at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, you have God coming down to confuse the languages so that humanity could not set up their own kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. But on the day of Pentecost, uh, yeah, that was the Tower of Babel. Did I say the wrong thing? I think I may have said, uh, uh, reversed what I was meaning. Okay, the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages. So humanity could not set up their kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. But at Pentecost, when God saw that he had a group of people who were so fully surrendered and fully committed to doing his will and, and uh, following and setting up his kingdom... God united the language and allowed them to speak in a way that everybody could hear and everybody could understand. It was the means of undoing and resolving all kingdom conflict. Saying, preacher, are you saying that there will be that there's no conflict between people who are uh, spirit? filled, spirit-led people. No, I'm not saying that there's never any conflict. But what I am saying is that when God's spirit is present in that way, 
he is ruling and reigning in our hearts. And that united we are purposed together to see his kingdom come. That the conflicts that may exist between us don't matter. You see what's happening, what happens when we're pursuing our will and our plan and our purpose. And maybe we're, and a lot of us are trying to do good things. We're trying to set up God's kingdom in our way. We end up trying to get everybody on the same page and we find points of, of disagreement and contention and, and we bump heads and we think, well, I can't work together with that person because they see it that way and I don't see it that way and, and we disagree and bump heads and God's kingdom suffers. But as far as I'm aware, as I study history, every significant move of God all of the significant revivals that have taken place. You can see it in the Great Awakening. Uh, you can see it in the revival in the Hebrides, in Wales. It just, I would encourage you, if you've never read any of the stories of the great revivals of, of, of history, I would encourage you to do that. These were times when the move of God and the work of the Holy Spirit crossed denominational lines. People from various church backgrounds came together in prayer, in seeking God. And God's Spirit moved in a powerful way. And friends, I'm not so naive as to believe that all of them said, well, we now agree on everything, and so we're going to work together. I don't believe that. What I believe happened is that the move of God and the power of God's Spirit was so strong that they came to realize, you know what, our differences don't really matter. We can set them aside and we can work together for the purpose of building God's kingdom. <clears throat> so this is, this is the way, this is the means, I believe, by which God brings this. God empowered this. So we say, preacher, how do we get there? How do we make that happen? Well, I will tell you this, it doesn't happen by looking at the Sermon on the Mount and saying, okay, here's the new law. Let's make this our checklist and check, 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 check. No, this is a picture of what God's kingdom citizens look like. And how we get there is through relinquishing control of our own personal kingdoms and we begin to live in God's kingdom. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In me as it, as it is in heaven. Where I am. And friends, ultimately, the result of this is a pure heart, it is power for living, and it is peace in the kingdom. Peace in the kingdom. No more kingdoms in conflict. So you want to live this way. You want to live like a citizen of God's kingdom. Friends, it is only 
available through the power of God's Spirit. It won't be available through looking into the Sermon on the Mount and treating it like a checklist and saying, check, 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 okay, I'm good. But it will be as we say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. You set up your kingdom in me. No hidden rooms, no secret corners or closets where I keep the key and I've got control. And we say, God, you can touch everything but that. As you may have heard the old statement, if he is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. Amen. So how do we resolve kingdom conflict? It happens through the power of the Spirit when we relinquish control to God's kingdom. Amen. Let's stand together, please.